Hello and welcome. You're listening to Jot That Down. I'm Chloe. I'm Alex. And I'm Haley. And we're providing you with knowledge that you're not asking for. How, how do we do the intros? Hello, daughters. Hi, daughters. Um, welcome Hi, to. Hi, daughters. Hi, Jotters. Welcome to episode eight of Jot That Down. Today we're going to be covering unsolved mysteries. I can go first. Thank God. Because someone's hashtag preoccupado. Mm-hmm. So, it's Haley. It's Haley. Haley's doing her nails. Okay. So, I was going back and forth between different topics that I wanted to talk about. Um, and I ended up on one that's not really an unsolved mystery, but one component is, and also the whole thing is just kind of like a train wreck and a mind fuck. So I decided to do it anyway. There's unsolved mystery components. Um, so I'm excited. Well, that makes two of us. Yeah. Just two. Okay. So I'm doing Robert Durst. (laughs) I'm intrigued. I don't know anything about him. Are you, did you do it? Haley, or no. you just don't want to hear No, no, no. It? I just think he's so creepy. Um, I am looking forward to it. Like, I don't know much, so it should be good. Yeah, okay. I don't know anything. Well, we'll see what happens. Okay, so um, full disclosure in the beginning, now that I remember, I'm not going to do it like last week where I talked about a docuseries and I never said that. So spoiler alert, a lot of this is what was covered in The Jinx on HBO, which is a really good docuseries. And I do recommend it to both of you and everyone else out there, all of our listeners. So Robert Durst is the son of a real estate company owner, Seymour Durst. He studied at Lehigh University. Don't know if that's how you say it. He graduated in 1965, and then he went to UCLA for, I don't know, another degree. I probably should have researched that. At UCLA, he befriended Susan Berman, who was a journalist and the daughter of a mobster. Very fun Ooh, stuff. I love a good mobster. Mm-hmm. Same. This is getting messy already. Okay. <laughs> In 1973. (laughs) (laughs) Let her speak, Kaylee. My God. So after UCLA, he moved to New York City. And in 1973, he married Kathleen McCormick, who was a dental hygienist and eventually um, went to medical school. And I couldn't really confirm if this was true, but apparently when she decided she wanted to go to medical school, he cut her off financially. Which is fucked. But anywho, there were allegations that he was violent and controlling, so that makes sense, in 1981, and their marriage was falling apart. So they got married in 1973, marriage was falling apart in 1981. Just a little timeline. In January of 1982, Kathleen went missing months before she was to graduate from med school. So she went missing January 31st. But Robert didn't report her as missing until February 5th. What the hell? So she went missing in January, you said? January 31st of oh, 1982. Oh, my and God. Her missing five days later on February 5th. So he claims that he didn't report her missing because he had driven her to the train station near where they were in New York. They were in South Salem, New York. And he drove her to a train station nearby so she could take the train 
to go to Manhattan and stay at their property there because they've got money, they got places. So several people reported seeing her or talking to her in South Salem where their house was when she was supposed to be in New York City. Um, but Robert claims that he wasn't involved in anything having to do with her disappearance. Um, and because there were no leads, the case went cold. Around this time, Susan Berman, who's the daughter of the mobster who he met at UCLA, kind of acted as his unofficial spokesperson during this, which was not necessary. I don't know. Were there like rumors of them being weirdly close? Oh, like romantic ties between the two? Not that I found, but I don't know. Possibly. Also, was she like, was she just a regular person or was she somehow like a lawyer or? She was a journalist. Oh, Mm. okay. Mysterious. (laughs) So at this time, Kathleen's friends also decided to conduct their own investigation since there were no leads with the police and the case went cold. And they did end up, like, gathering certain things and, like, maybe evidence and materials, but their homes ended up being burglarized, and the materials were stolen. How many friends are we talking here? I don't know. (laughs) More than one. Less than 20. Yeah, not a coincidence. (laughs) Thank you. Continue. (laughs) There's probably, like, single-digit friends, like two or three. I don't know. Okay. So, at... This time, Robert had been working for his family's real estate company, but then in 1994, he was passed up as the successor of the company, even though he was the oldest son, Um, and that position had been given to his younger brother. Um, So there was family tension, which is always fun. In November 2000, investigators announced that the case of his missing wife, Kathleen, was being reopened. And six weeks later, in December of 2000, Robert marries Deborah Lee Chariton, who's a New York real estate exec, which she doesn't really come into the story, but she thought she'd get thrown in there. So then, in December of 2000, after the investigation was announced that it would resume, Susan Berman was to meet with investigators about Kathleen's disappearance. Also at this time, Robert Durst left New York City and went to Texas, but more on that later. So on December 24th, 2000, Susan Berman was found shot point blank in the back of the head in her house. Right before she was supposed to meet with investigators about the disappearance of Kathleen. And this, this was the friend, the daughter of the mobster? Yep. Yeah, the spokesperson that was, like, friends with Robert Durst. Yeah. So the police found her body after being tipped off by a note that they received that had her address on it, except the word Beverly Hills, like, Beverly was spelled wrong. Mm -hmm. And all the note said was cadaver in block letters, like capital letters. Ew. Mm Mm-hmm. Please tell me they, like, somehow were able to, like, compare the handwriting to someone. Please say. Possibly. Cool. (laughs) More on that later. So around this time that Susan Berman was killed, Robert moved to Galveston, Texas, 
where he lived as a woman named Dorothy Sinner, and he posed as a mute woman. So he, like, assumed this name and this identity. He dressed up in drag, like, dressed up as a woman, and he lived in Texas. Just. I have a lot of questions. (laughs) Like, did he want to be... Did he want to be, like, identified as a woman, or was he, like, straight up hiding out? I'm assuming it's hiding out. It seems like he wanted to hide out, given the fact that, like, he pretended he, so he was mute. He, he assumed the identity of an actual childhood acquaintance. Like, Dorothy Sinner was a real person. I don't know Ew. why he picked that name. And then he dressed up as a woman, but a mute woman. And then sometimes he would go into town as a mute Robert Durst. So he just wasn't talking. Pick a side. Seriously. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So in Texas, he lived in a shabby apartment and befriended his 71-year-old neighbor, Morris Black. On September 28, 2001, Dorothy, a.k.a. Robert, came home to his apartment to find Morris Black watching TV, sitting on the couch in Robert's apartment. And then Robert claimed that Morris Black pulled a gun on him. They got into an altercation. They struggled. And then Durst fatally shot him. But in a panic, he didn't want to be accused of murder. So he dismembered the body, wrapped the pieces in garbage bags, and threw them in the Galveston Bay in Galveston, Texas. What? Yeah. And he thought that this was, like, inconspicuous somehow? I, yeah, I don't know where the logic is. And, like, There's he didn't want to get on. in trouble for murder. Tell someone. Just right. tell someone. Yeah, I don't really know how you go from, like, oh, no, I don't want to be, like, in trouble for murder. And then you're, like, oh, let me chop up his entire body. Oh, my God. He, whatever people are claiming he did, he did. I know the story isn't over, but, like, <laughs> anything that he's been suspected of, he did. That's just my opinion. Yeah. So after this, he was arrested. And then he was out on bail. Ugh, How, of course he was. Did they do that? What and was the bail? To Pennsylvania. I don't know what the bail oh was, but God. he did have some family money. So then he fled to Pennsylvania. And then there was a six-week search for him by the police because he was out on bail and um, left the state. And then he was arrested in Pennsylvania for shoplifting at a supermarket. Could you be dumber? I also don't get it. Like, (laughs) if he has family money for bail, does he not have money for, like, groceries? Yeah, not really sure. He was also arrested after that for, like, public urination. So I think he's just an idiot. He's so stupid. I don't know. Trash. In 2003, he um, was on trial for murder of Morris Black, his neighbor, and he was acquitted on a claim of self-defense. And that's on privilege and that's on our justice system what what did he Mm -hmm. say about the dismemberment of him like no one found that suspicious yeah i don't know they they just chalked the whole thing up to self-defense and then that was just like a reaction to it i guess but he did plead guilty to minor charges and he served six months wow okay and then in march of 2015 Years and years, 15 years after the murder of Susan Berman, he was arrested for her murder. He claims he's innocent and he doesn't know who killed her. And he also claimed at the time 
that of when he was arrested in 2015 that he didn't write the note that was sent to the police officers um, of like where to find her body. But in the documentary, The Jinx, they basically they show him his own handwriting and then they show him the note. And he at one point is unable to distinguish which of the notes he wrote and which oh he God. didn't. Oh my and God. Went letters and stuff. And also they have a record somehow. I don't remember the exact details that he often misspelled the word Beverly, which is huh. what was misspelled in the letter. Mm-hmm. I wonder how they got that, like put that together. Yeah. I'm not sure. And so after seven years of investigation, finally a trial is set for the murder of Susan Berman for March 2020. And then because of COVID, (laughs) it got postponed. So now it will be April 12th of 2021. Oh, thank God. So where is he? Like, is he just like free as of now? um, I don't exactly know how that works. Um, I feel like he'd be in jail. In jail awaiting trial. Unless they're stupid enough to let him, like, be on house arrest or something. But also, in January of 2020, he finally admitted, and his defense team, whatever, admitted that he wrote the note. But they still maintain that he's innocent in actually murdering her and not knowing what happened to her. I, I have no words. And that's on, again, our justice system. Mm-hmm. And one final thing, Kathleen McCormick, her body was never found. Oh, shit. Body was never found. No one was ever charged for her murder. Nothing. That's so sad. unsolved mystery. Am I being dumb? Is this the same guy as the staircase or is this different? This is different. Okay. They sound both sus. Mm Mm-hmm. The jinx and the staircase, it just sounds like the same thing to me. I can't believe you just said sus. It does. (laughs) Doesn't sound sus to you? Suspect. Sus. Yeah, different guy, but I understand they're both weird and creepy and probably murderers. Too bad we couldn't. Well, Robert Durst is definitely a murderer. Think that's the truth. Mm -hmm. That is... So very overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Did he ever say anything about his like dressing in drag and why he was doing that? No. Mm. Not that also, I saw. Did you say he chose the name Dorothy Sinner? Yes. <sighs> that is so fucking tacky. He chose Sinner as a last name. So it's spelled C I N E R. Yeah, because he doesn't know, know how to spell Beverly. <laughs> like you do. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, is it E-Y? No, so that's how Robert spelled it. (laughs) (laughs) But in actuality, it's just at the end L-Y. It's like, I know 15 Beverly's and they all spell it different, so it's so hard. Mm. This is just Beverly as in Beverly Hills. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Beverly Hillary. (laughs) Oh my God. I cannot with you. All right, who wants to go next? I can go. Here you go, Joel. Is that okay? Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to be discussing the mystery case of Dan Cooper, who they call DB. And it's sort of two parts. So the first part is the heist. So Thanksgiving Eve, 
It's November 24th, 1971, and a middle-aged man is carrying a black briefcase and approaches the flight counter at an airline that no longer exists called Northwest Orient Airlines at the Portland International Airport in Portland, Oregon. Not Portland, Maine, Haley. I'm so sorry. Thank fucking... No, don't apologize. (laughs) Sounds Um, sus already. We don't want him here. Okay. So the man identifies himself as Dan Cooper, and he uses cash to purchase a one-way ticket on flight 305, which is a 30-minute trip from Portland to Seattle. So he boards this aircraft, a Boeing 727. I don't know why that's so specific to this story. And he sits in seat 18C. He appears to be in his mid-40s. He's wearing a business suit with a black tie and a white shirt, and he orders a bourbon with 7-Up while he's waiting for the flight to take off. And this flight was allegedly only one-third full, so it was like kind of empty. It was just the flight attendants and like a bunch of empty seats. It departed on time from Portland at 2.50 p.m. Shortly after takeoff, Cooper hands a note to Florence Schaffner, who is one of the flight attendants situated nearest to him in one of the jump seats attached to the stair door that, like, the flight attendants sit in, you know, where, like, all the drink carts are. Um, So he leaves her this note and says, Miss, you'd better look at this note. I have a bomb. So the note is printed in neat all capital letters with a felt tip pen and the exact like Robert Durst's handwriting <laughs> probably it's probably the same person and the exact wording is unknown because he claims the note back and takes it back from the flight attendant but the flight attendant recalls that the note said that there was a bomb in the briefcase so she reads the note cooper tells her to sit next to him and she does as requested and then quietly asks him if she can see the bomb So he opens his briefcase long enough for her to glimpse and see there's like eight red cylinders in this briefcase attached to different wires and what looks like a large battery. Um, So this is really like the pre-9-11 days where you could like bring anything on an airplane. So she closes the briefcase and asks him if he needs anything. And so he states his demands, which are $200,000 in quote, negotiable American currency for parachutes, two of them being primary and two of them being reserve parachutes, a fuel truck standing by in Seattle to refuel this aircraft upon arrival. And she needs to go tell the pilots on his behalf. Those are his requests. So she takes it into her hands and She later said that he was very calm in asking for all of his demands. So she goes into the cockpit and tells the pilots. And when she comes back, he's sitting in the same spot, but he's put sunglasses on. And one of the pilots, William Scott, who had served in World War II in the um, Air Force, contacted the Seattle airport traffic control and like informed them that there were 35 passengers on this plane and they are being told there's a bomb on the plane and that the one passenger has all of these requests. So he basically has to like negotiate the hijackers demands to air traffic control. So then the plane circles around the, I, I don't know how to pronounce it. The Puget sound, Pug, 
pugnant sound. Does anyone know how to say that? I think it's um, pu- Puget. Oh, that's it. Puget? Puget? I don't know. I don't know. Puget sound. <laughs> for yeah, two hours while they wait for the police and the FBI to sufficiently assemble Cooper's parachutes and ransom money and to mobilize emergency personnel. So another flight attendant, Tina Mucklow, recalls that Cooper appeared very familiar with the geography and like the local terrain that they were flying over because he kept pointing out different locations and he'd say like, that's Tacoma or there's Seattle or like whatever when they were looking out the window circling the airport for two hours. And Tina told the investigators that he seemed very nice. He was never cruel or nasty. He was constantly calm and like thoughtful almost. He never like got angry or defensive or anything. He ordered more drinks. Like it was super odd that he was just like so calm and also trying to like conduct a heist at the same time. On the ground, the FBI agents get ransom money from several different Seattle area banks. They get 10,000 unmarked $20 bills with most of the serial numbers beginning with the letter L to indicate that like, I guess they had come from like one particular bank. Um, And then they got like a bunch of parachutes and stuff from like local um, like military bases and also like civilian parachutes from like skydiving schools is what I found. That's what I was going to ask. I was like, holy crap, do airplanes have parachutes on? Like I was wondering how he would get all of these things. So that makes more sense. So I think his whole, his goal was like to land in Seattle, know that there was like, they were going to refuel his plane, have all of the cash and the parachutes. And then he would take the plane back once everybody gets off. Like he never wants to hurt anybody. Like he's not like holding anyone hostage. Mm -hmm. But he all, I mean, he is by keeping them on the plane for two hours, like threatening all of their lives. But he's never like, I'm going to kill you in order to Mm get $200,000. Like, I just want this plane. And if I don't get it, like, I'll blow everybody up. So, yeah, he is sort of like a (laughs) hijacker. But anyway, (laughs) so the police, like, get all this stuff and they go to the airport to wait. And at 5.24 p.m., Um, he is informed that his demands have been met. And then 11 minutes later, the aircraft lands at the airport in Seattle and it's nighttime now. So like, it's a little bit dark and like, he can't really see who's there, but they have the police and the FBI have sort of like hidden themselves in the airport, like parking. I don't. I don't know what it's called where like all the planes land, but like all over the runways, there's like snipers and like agents and stuff just in the event that he does attempt to do anything. They don't want to like engage with him, but he orders all of the passengers to get off, off the plane. And then like once everybody is off, he asks that the one flight attendant Schaffner, who he had like shown the bomb to initially and another senior flight attendant to stay on the plane with him. So his plane is being refueled and he outlines his flight plan to the cockpit crew and he wants to go to Mexico. So he specifies like with them 
what he's going to need, like how to take off and land this plane. Like he wants them to basically like teach him how to fly a plane in like a very quick amount so he can go to Mexico. And the co-pilot, William Radizak, Radizak, I hope I said that right, informs him that the aircraft's range was limited to a thousand miles. And in order to get to Mexico, he would need to refuel his plane at some point. So they decide on Reno, Nevada to be the refueling stop which is just the geography of that is like so crazy. It feels like he's literally going to a travel agent and planning <laughs> his own trip. It sort of does seem like that. So he tells, the, he tells the pilot to take off the plane. So like there's some flight attendants on this plane and then the pilot and the co-pilot. And he tells them that they will all be safe, but he says that, he just wants to be in the air. Like he doesn't want anybody asking questions or like asking what his plan is. So the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration, requests a meeting with him aboard the aircraft, which he denies and says, no, you cannot come on this aircraft. So the refueling process is delayed when they get to Reno because there's a vapor lock, which I don't really know what that is, but I guess like the truck that's pumping in the gas like was having all these issues. So the plane finally gets refueled and it takes off from Reno with five people on board, himself, the pilot, the flight attendant, the co-pilot, and then an engineer who they did not name. And then two fighter aircrafts are following this plane to see what's happening. And like, in case he blows it up, they, like want to alert people. So after takeoff, he alerts the flight attendant to join the rest of the crew in the cockpit and to stay there with the door closed. So she does what she's told and she observes him tying something and she can't tell what it is, but he's wrapping it around his stomach. And it looks like a bag filled with the money that they had given him in a briefcase. And so at 8 o'clock p.m., a warning light comes on in the cockpit that the air stair apparatus has been activated. And the flight attendant comes on the intercom since she's not allowed to go into the back of the plane and says, are you okay back there? Is there anything we can do for you? And he screams through the cockpit door, no. And that's the last time they heard from him. And at 8.13 p.m., there was like a movement in the airplane because the door opened and like nobody ever saw him again. He like jumped out of the plane while it was in the air, while it was in the air, like so high up there. So I don't know. I don't know exactly what the elevation was. So this is where we get into the second part. So he has jumped out of the plane. People are like, very confused as to how he did this. And also like the two fighter jets did not see anybody come out of the plane. So it was like, nobody saw anything, but nobody knows where he went. So then the FBI launches this huge investigation. They recovered 66 latent fingerprints on the airliner and they found like his clip on tie, the four parachutes, like a bunch of like canopies that he had left behind that he had in his briefcase. Wait, he didn't take any of the parachutes? 
I think he only took one of the parachutes because oh, I thought he was only given four. <laughs> That's what I'm I was like. like what? You're so kidding. Cool. <laughs> so it said that they found two of the four parachutes. Oh, okay, okay. Um, so he he must have had two of them. Um, so the local police and FBI immediately begin questioning possible suspects, like anybody who might know anything, people who came in contact with him. They were trying to get composite sketches developed. Like he looked very generic he was just like a normal boring looking like white dude with sunglasses on so there was no like defining you know he didn't have like a teardrop tattoo or anything so it was very difficult to like identify him um and local police and fbi agents you know were like looking for somebody named db cooper because that is what he called himself and they found someone in in Oregon who had a minor police record and he was like immediately their person of interest. So he's contacted by the police, like as this potential hijacker. And it was like a huge mess because they identified the wrong DB Cooper and they published in the newspaper that this man had hijacked a plane when in fact he had not. And it was a different DB Cooper. That's horrible. I know. So his precise location of like where he could have been was very difficult to define because they got like scientists and pilots and all these different like recreations going so that they could try to like simulate where he could possibly have landed. They did things like push a 200 pound sled out of like tester airplanes to see where it would land and like how a parachute would like drag it almost like how where it would end up because they were trying to be like where the hell is this guy like we have zero idea where the heck he went the fbi coordinated this aerial search they used helicopters they called in the national guard they had been working on this forever they aided 200 agents and assigned them to this case specifically and they did literal years of searching they finally, in 2016, had to suspend, 2016, so this is 45 years after this happened, had to suspend the investigation and just post all of the information that the FBI had on their website because they never found him. They never found anything tied oh to God. him. They, they looked for the ransom money. Like They published the serial numbers to all banks all across the country and like had zero hits on anything there was one hit in um, 1972 where like these two guys printed counterfeit money to match the serial number so that they could get the like ransom from the police where you like if you have a tip like you can get like a whatever it's called they committed a crime of printing money to get more money (laughs) and yeah they did um (laughs) but Basically, like years later, right before they suspended this this case in 2016, further analysis sort of determined that like the original landing zone that the FBI and all the scientists had thought of where he had landed were in fact like inaccurate because like with winds and with weather and like all these different factors, the science of like how this happened in 1970 
or what, whatever year it was, like 1976, 1974, sorry, they were way more advanced in the late 2000s. And they were like, yeah, we did this all wrong. So all of this information, a 60 volume case file over 45 years is all available on the FBI's website and all evidence is open to the public because they just never solved this case. Also, like, is it likely he just straight up died? Like, I maybe don't know. that's why the serial numbers were never found because, like, did he know how to jump out of a plane with a parachute? Right, like, like, <laughs> did they ever find out, like, if he had, like, background in skydiving? No, they never ident- – they didn't even know who he was. Like, the name that he gave was not yeah. his real name. Mm-hmm. So they don't know, like, anything about him. Oh, my God. It, like – it also kind of bugs me, and I'm not saying people shouldn't try to find him because obviously he is literally a terrorist, but it bothers me that the FBI has spent like 45 years of resources and there's so many other cases mm-hmm. that just kind of go cold. There sure are. And like, I totally get that he threatened people's lives and that's super dangerous, especially in the air. And like, obviously this was before 9-11 and stuff, but- like, I feel like the FBI is looking at it because they're like, oh, this guy got like 200 grand out of us. They made us look like fools. Like, what? I don't know. It just seems like there's so many other things to be looking for. And they've decided to spend 45 years on this and have yet to find anything. Yeah, only to find nothing and then have to be like, well, we got nothing. Here's all of our stuff. <laughs> Five years later. <laughs> like, is that not? I feel bad for the intern. He's like, great. I have to look at all these files. I feel bad for that flight attendant. Mm-hmm. I feel, yes, I feel bad for everyone in this situation. I just yeah. I when you said that he like approached her with the note and then she's like, "Can I see the bomb?" I don't think I would ever ask to see it. I think for I would sure just not. take his not word once. for it. Yeah, for sure. Like I would not want to see it. But also. I think if someone approached me and was like, I have a bomb, I would do anything they said. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, ugh, yeah. I don't know how they all stayed so calm. And then, like, also, what did all the passengers, like, did the passengers know? There was no information on, like, if they came over the intercom and were like, please relax or, like, you know, don't panic Just or, like, anything. quick update on what's happening. <laughs> hey, guys. Hey guys, we actually have to stop and then um, get a a little cash for the road. <laughs> and also, we're not going to make it to your final destination. Yes. But, um, have a you, great day. Welcome to Seattle. <laughs> okay, bye. <laughs> anyway, so that is the mystery of D.B. Cooper. That's I also insane. have more questions. Yeah. So when they landed in Seattle, hmm. first of all, a 30-minute flight. I'm sure the I flight attendant was just like, was 30 damn minutes. it, we should have just driven. But... <laughs> But that's like a four-hour drive. Uh, I mean, at this point. I think that D.B. Cooper thing is insane. And I've only heard – I like, I just thought it was like a man disappearing from the sky. I had no idea that he was like actually a terrorist. So this is fascinating. Yeah, I in no way meant to like glorify his um, terror. I oh, just, my God, no. I just like – No, I it's fascinating it because he – Right. If he had like 
taken people hostage. Mm-hmm. But all he really wanted was the plane. Right. No, I didn't. I didn't get that vibe at all. I don't say anything like to diminish what he did, but I just like I'm so like there's so many disasters that happen that go cold. And when I hear about like a 45 year old FBI case, it just stresses me out. Yeah. I'm just like, okay. I feel like, and this is, I feel this way about like detectives, cancer researchers, like people who spend their whole lives like working on one specific thing. It must be so frustrating to literally work forever in like your whole professional career on one thing and still not solve it. Oh yeah. Like imagine mm-hmm. being an agent and being like, oh I'm assigned to this case. It's the 70s, like so cool. Woo. And then 45 years later you're retiring and you still haven't fucking solved it. It would be so frustrating. For sure. Especially if like and I guess that's why people get assigned to new things to like have fresh eyes. But imagine looking at like the same evidence for 45 years. What? No, I cannot. Okay, I'm going to go into mine. What other questions I have. Oh, shit. Sorry, Alex. No, it's okay. It's my bad. Oh, I think I was going to say that. So he let all the passengers off the plane. Did he let any of the, like, were any of the flight attendants or pilots allowed to, like, get off the plane and come back? Because I feel like the police should have, like, infiltrated the plane so when I think they landed. They tried to when. They like he was communicating with the police through the pilots, and I think what happened, and I could be wrong, but I think what happened is like he denied them being able to come on the plane, but he let everybody off. Okay, kept the pilot and the engineer or whatever. Okay, I guess that makes sense. Yeah, and also, I I think it's so funny that he's like, okay, gas her up. Like, we're going, like, so far away. And they're like, okay, but we're going to have to take one more pit stop. Literally, they're, they're like, you planning can't a get road to Mexico trip. yet. Okay, we're going to go to Reno. <laughs> There's a final stop wonder, there. Like, if he hadn't jumped and they got to Mexico, like, would anything have happened to him? Like, I feel like they would have um, captured him as soon as they landed. See, I kind of feel like they'd be like, okay, this guy has a bomb. I don't know. I don't know. And did he bring the bomb with him when he jumped? I don't think he had a bomb. I think that's the whole thing. What? I don't think the bomb was real. An actual bomb? Yeah. That's my personal theory. There's no, like, evidence to support this. I just kind of feel like his saying, I have a bomb, was his way of getting them to do what he wanted well she saw something in the briefcase but it was like she described it as eight coke cans she described it as eight (laughs) red cylinders four on top four on the bottom attached to wires coated with red insulation and a large cylindrical battery yeah no that would be enough for me to be like for sure but i feel like he could have literally put like empty bottles in there and like spray painted them and put wires on mm-hmm. them and been like here's a bottle you know what i mean yeah. right but i'm just <clears throat> wondering like still like so they would have had to land the plane and just like assume that he had bombs you're asking me to like to- get in the head of this hijacker and i can't do it the fbi okay. has taken 45 years and <laughs> chloe has about 40 minutes let's cut her some slack 
Thank you so much, Haley. You're welcome. That's so fair. Okay, I'm done with my questions. Thank you. That was great and very, very interesting. Thank you. Cue the music. Haley, take it away. Okay. Oh. Um, mine is a lot sadder. It's gonna take a turn, and I'm sorry for that. Um, it's just I heard this story, like when I was really into crime junkies, as Chloe knows. I would listen to it all the time. I don't listen to it anymore probably because it's just so sad and depressing. But this story really creeped me out, and I I thought this would be a good topic. So it's the disappearance of Amy Lynn Bradley in 1998, just as some background. She had just graduated from college. She was 23 years old, and she went on a Royal Caribbean international cruise. It was called the Rhapsody of Seas with her family, so her brother and her parents. Um, mm-hmm. oh well, okay. so I don't know what's about to happen. Yeah, okay. Well, I've I never been it's going to take a turn, and it's the disappearance of someone. Okay, so. Knew it was going to be sad. Mm-hmm. We're not rejoicing. So it was a week-long cruise. seemed like the family had had fun up until this point, but after a night out dancing and enjoying the live band on the cruise, Amy disappeared in the early morning hours on March 24th, 1998. Um, That night, she had been seen hanging out with one of the band members. His name was Alistair Douglas, also known as Yellow. Her brother, Brad, had spent – I don't know why his nickname's Yellow. (laughs) Like, who knew him as that? What do you want? I don't know. (laughs) Her brother, Brad, had spent part of the night with her but went to bed earlier than she had. I think he went to bed around 11. And she had arrived back in the family suite. Her father says he last saw her when he randomly woke up around 5.15, 5.30-ish. She was asleep on the balcony. And then he randomly woke up again around 6 and she wasn't there. Wait, she was asleep on the balcony? Like, Yeah. Like, I think it said she'd been drinking, dancing, like, having fun like any 23-year-old would. So I'm sure she was probably just like, oh, I'll sleep out here. It's, like, nice out, whatever it is. And that was the last time anyone had seen her. So – and he had seen – like, he hadn't seen her face. I think he just saw her feet. Like – Yes, it was the last time anyone saw anything of her. So the ship had just left from Aruba and was shortly docking in Krakow. I hope that's how I'm pronouncing it. Um, well, that is how you're that pronouncing, is how it. You're pronouncing <sighs> it. You know what I mean. <laughs> fuck up. But also, he just saw her feet. So, <clears throat> like, technically, it could have been someone else, but it's probably it's her. Highly unlikely because, like, you obviously have to have, like, a key to get into your suite. Mm-hmm. Like, I thought you were about to say, because you know your kid's feet. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Um, but, yes. So, the ship had just left from Aruba. It was docking shortly in Krakow um, when family when Amy's family alerted <laughs> the cruise ship authorities. <laughs> <laughs> You just said that so differently from the first time. Caracal. Caracal. We don't know how to say it. Oh my God. Don't ask me how to spell it. Caracal. What are you going to ask her next? To do some math? Sounds like you're saying Krakow, which is not. No. Uh, Like C U R C A O. C U R A C A O. Yes. Oh, let's hear a thing. Krakow. Who knows? 
Okay, I can't find it. You you get it. It's a it's a little island yep. off the Caribbean Sea. Anywho, ladies, let's let's stay focused. Sorry, sorry. So they were shortly docking, um, and that's when Amy's family alerted the cruise ship authorities. But the cruise was like incredibly incredibly apprehensive to do the search because they wanted to dock first and they didn't want to like make a scene and alert people. So they literally didn't search for her until the ship docked. And if they had, her story could have been extremely different. Like, this is where all of the theories come into play. Um, how much time between, like, when they were alerted and then when they docked? I think as soon as her dad woke up, saw she wasn't there, and I think he talked to, like, her brother. They <laughs> Maybe it was around, like, a little after six. I'm not sure. And they were, they were going to dock around that same time and they like told people as soon as they could and they were like no we're gonna like let people get off and then we'll do a search oh okay okay understood thank you right so yes it's very unlikely um and it's essentially been ruled out by everyone who's investigated this that amy went overboard there's no evidence of any kind of like her falling off the balcony. And also, I don't know if this really counts because like how tall is a cruise ship, but they said like she was a trained lifeguard. She knew how to swim very well. Like they're just saying it's highly unlikely that this would have happened. So the biggest theory, and it's really unsettling, but that she was sold into sex slavery at this island and that the cruise ship and the people had something to do with it. So... This is where we get into the sightings. There's been, like, multiple sightings of people who claim to have seen Amy. She had, like, three distinctive tattoos. And distinctive, I mean, like, she had, like, a Tasmanian devil spinning a basketball. She had a sun, a Chinese symbol. Like, she had all of these things that would be really good identifiers. And... In 1999, two Canadian tourists reportedly saw a woman on a beach. They were like, this woman looks uncanny. Like, she had tattoos that they thought identified with Amy. And they also saw two men that were, like, very close to her. And they weren't able to approach her. So they couldn't do anything about it. The next one, which is just, it's, like, very upsetting. But a member of the United States Navy stated that he had seen her in a brothel in 1999. He was convinced it was her. He claims that she told him her name was Amy Bradley and she begged him for help. And she was explaining that she was not there on her own will and obviously like needed help from him. And he was so afraid that he would get in trouble for being at a brothel when he was on duty that he didn't bring it up until years later essentially when there was nothing else to do about it are you kidding me nope was that the last sighting of her no so there was another sighting and it was like a waitress in 2005 a waitress had supposedly seen bradley in a restroom in barbados and barbados is pretty close like it's obviously another island it's like Oh my God, am I being dumb? Is that the Bermuda Triangle? Anyway, so I'm thinking of like Aruba, Caracao, however you pronounce it, and, the, and Barbados are like pretty close. It literally like looks like it's a triangle. I don't know if that's the Bermuda Triangle because I'm dumb. Anyway, so she had like seen a woman enter the restroom and she was accompanied by 
three men and they like, she apparently heard them threaten her if she had said anything. I, I don't know. She approached the woman who then said her first name was Amy and that she was from Virginia, AKA Amy Lynn Bradley before the men came and took her away. They like made like sketches of what these people looked like, but nothing came of it, which is just horrible. And also in 2005, like the family went on Dr. Phil, like trying to get more outreach for Amy's story and they like offered an award. And there's also another really sad story that my heart just like breaks for the family, but I can't remember what year it was, but essentially the family hired their own private investigator who like claimed he was a former Navy SEAL and he was like, I know where she is. I'm going to go get her. They literally shelled out $200,000 for like what they thought was a rescue team and they just got scammed. Oh my God. Yeah. Like he obviously preyed on a very desperate family and it's just so sad. And there's been like a couple other disturbing things. Like there was this picture that showed up I think it was like 10 years later and it was a woman like in this area and she was obviously like a prostitute and it was a picture of this woman laying on a bed and this FBI agent is convinced that it's her. He's like, I I can't like emphasize enough. This looks exactly like her if she were like aged however long, but there's nothing they can do about it because it sounds like if this is happening, she was getting moved to different parts of different islands And also, like, you're dealing with an American on different soil, and there's different laws and everything like that. So, essentially, long story short, it looks like something was, like, orchestrated on the cruise, whether it was, like, a cruise member, that band member, Yellow, who she had been seen with. There was actually a video of them, too, like, dancing. And essentially, and then she was sold into sex slavery. And they are like she would be 45, 46 now. And there's just like no way of knowing basically whatever happened to her. That is so awful. Mm -hmm. I can't believe how many people claim they saw her and yet did nothing in the moment to like actually make a difference. Like what would it have taken to like call on local authorities like at that moment? And what's the most infuriating thing is like, it's almost obvious that she was sold into this because that Navy SEAL, because one, he was so afraid of getting in trouble that he decided not to tell anyone and he spoke out years later. And it's like, that can't be a lie because if he never, if he was still afraid of getting in trouble, he wouldn't tell anyone. So Mm -hmm. I'm like, I feel like he's not making that up and it was her and they can't do anything about it. And like, who knows if she's still alive, she'd be 45 by now. Right. That is just so sad. Mm -hmm. I just also would never want to go on a cruise because it's like international waters and I feel like there's like no laws there. And if the cruise had just been able to like search the ship before they docked, I think it would have been so different. And there's like theories about cruises being a vehicle for sex trafficking. But they probably were, like you said, involved or anticipated that it was something to do with someone trying to kidnap her to sell her into, like, sex slavery because they probably bought themselves insurance by letting people leave and letting her get away with them. Right. Like, and that's that's the horrible part. And I think even her family, like... (sighs) 
I listened to this a while ago, so take this with a grain of salt, but I think her family like got off when they docked. We're looking for her. We're super desperate because they knew people were looking on the ship. They got off. They had no idea what to do. And then I think they got back on the ship and like headed straight home. And then they flew back to the island, Caracom, you know, whatever it said. Um, and they just like couldn't find her. It was impossible. So were there any like cameras on board or like video? So I don't think there were security cameras, but like there's this really eerie video of like the last, well, the last video ever taken of her and she's dancing with that bandmate and she's like having a great time. And that was the last thing they have of her. But that's like on the ship. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was like a, like a, a handheld camera. I don't think there were security cameras. Mm -hmm. And also like, they just don't know, like it's a half hour where her dad was asleep and she just disappeared. Apparently she like didn't have shoes she didn't have shoes on. Like, she didn't – they don't know what happened. Her brother early on was like, oh, maybe she went out to, like, go get cigarettes or something like that. And some people think that because her brother was thinking she was just getting cigarettes. Maybe that's why the cruise ship was apprehensive to look because they're like, oh, maybe she's just out doing whatever. But I don't know. Did so her sad. family – are they still actively looking for her or like ever since the scamming, did they sort of stop? That's a good question. I think it's still a reward is still posted by the FBI. At least I do not know of anything recent from her family, but I'm sure. But if that like soldier had seen her, couldn't the FBI like go to the island? I mean, obviously it's like different territory, but like, couldn't they send someone undercover or something to like find her? You would think, but I think it's hard because like first she was seen in Caracal. I'm never going to pronounce it right. And then another person saw her in Barbados. Like maybe it's so intricate that they're able to just like move her around. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's horrible. <sighs> Mm-hmm. That's so sad for her family. Yeah. I, on, like, on a related note, I have never had a desire to go on a cruise. And, like, a lot of people I know love cruises. And they're like, they're so fun. Nothing appeals to me less than, like, being trapped on a boat in the middle of the ocean with, like, a bunch of strangers. I, like, I'd rather, like, be at a hotel and, like, take an airplane somewhere. But I don't want to, like on water all the time. I 1000% agree. I I could never be like a cruise person. No. Because I, the same thing, like I wouldn't find it fun to be in the middle of nowhere and then just go to random places. I just have no desire to do that. None. I used to really want to go on cruises and now I no longer have the desire. Mm, okay. Mm, that's mm -hmm. good. That's on maturity, Alex. Yeah. It's called growth. So, never yeah. heard of it. Um, well, I hope that one day they, you know, make some sort of discovery and yeah. hopefully can bring her home. That's just so terrible. Yeah. Sorry, ladies. I think next week we have to do something a little more upbeat. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to episode eight of Jot That Down. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Jot That Down Pod. That's J-O-T, that down, P-O-D.